0: Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy, and you're listening to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. In this episode, you'll hear from Icelandic singer Björk. Over the last three decades, few musicians have matched her electrifying output and restless reinvention, and we were incredibly excited to welcome her to the Academy in Montreal in November of 2016. The talk is hosted by Emma Warren, and together they dive into Björk's long and multifaceted career. If you want to learn more about RBMA and the Academy, do stay tuned after the lecture. But for now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom.
1: So I think we should just start by saying a very, very warm welcome, Björk. there's a really nice John Cage quote about utopia being a multiplicity of individuals who are generally in the habit of getting along with each other or something, words to those effect. Um, it was a, a quote that Alex Ross included in one of the essays he wrote about you, which I thought was really uh, a lovely way to think about utopia and actually quite an achievable way to think about utopia. And I wondered what you kind of feel to be a utopian place. Where are the environments in which you feel really great?
2: Yeah, I- Obviously I'm very biased. I, I love Iceland, you know. I guess I feel very blessed to come from a place like this where actually happens to have the cleanest air and most space and no army. Sorry, we got no army. It's um sorry to rub it in. Um so in that way it's really ideal. But I mean I think me just as a person, I really like this village vibe, you know, the fact that Reykjavik only has 150,000 people and everybody knows each other from somewhere or is the brother of someone and so you actually, you can't get away with shit, you know, it's like karma really,
1: domains there. It's the whole like, I'm going to tell your mum. Yeah. <laughs> everybody knows someone's mum. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible mm-hmm. uh, way of keeping control on things. Yeah.
2: But I mean, so obviously I really like Iceland, but but I understand what you're talking about, more utopia, that's like, a different thing, I mean, I really believe in utopia, I think it's 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 sort of, in a simple way, it's about knowing what you want, you know, and, and aiming for making a bubble of what the ideal thing would be, and I think it's really important to be really clear about that and, and, and very determined, and then, of course, only half of it is going to come true, because reality is different from ide- the ideal, but but um, so i don't think it's escapist because if you're if you you have to make be really clear about your dream and 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 then be aware of that it is a dream you know but then reality is this other um other piece that you surf and you just try to deal with on a you know day to day basis but uh, i i'm i'm a big believer in utopia and and this kind of this uh, reaching out for the dream. I think it's, we need it very much as a human species.
1: You, the word utopia has kind of come up in the few things that you've said about the new record you're working on. And I know that you don't want to talk about it in any detail because it's fragile and it needs its own space. But I, I wondered if it would be accurate to say that... You know, Biophilia was very much about the whole universe, and then Vulnacura was very much about the singularity of of one broken heart, and and with you using this word utopia and talking about happiness, is it fair to say the music you're writing now is is looking out into the world again?
2: Um, it's probably a bit too early to talk about the new album. I'm kind of still in the bubble, and when and uh, as much as I like to, I'm sometimes like it's, I can't see it from the outside, and, and that's kind of very convenient for me, that usually I do interviews afterwards, because then I've kind of like, there may be two or three years since I wrote the songs, and then I go, oh, that's what it is, you know, but when you're in the middle of it, you're not like, uh, you can't see out, but the little I can tell you is, yes, I th- I, th- I, I, th- I think I was very aware of about uh, utopia and and the fact I'm curious ab- about the dream and about what of it is real and what of it is not real and celebrating the um, the unrealness of it and, and especially in this day and age where technology can be very helpful and very um, easy to kind of sketch up in digitally what what you want I mean. I've I got my laptop in 1999 and it totally liberated me from the studio and the fact that I could do 90% of my music you know in in my la- in my bedroom so I could basically make up the dream but make the dream real you know so I think technology is really helping us with that but on the other side if you really want to go into utopia what I'm really concerned about is the um uh, the Ecology and, and global warming and the environment. So this is something we really have to be realistic about. And, and if we know how to make iPhone 7, we should know how to, you know, get rid of fossil fuels and and live in a, in a totally tech green world. We should have done that a while ago. So, and we should do it, like, get that done, like... Now, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can we just have the, the photograph? I wanted to talk to you about the women's strike in Iceland in the original one in 1975. We've just got a photograph on the screens here because this kind of taps into what you're saying about your, your kind of utopian interest at the moment is around the environment. And this was an iconic moment in Icelandic history where 90% of the women went out on strike. I believe that when it was originally called Women's Strike, less people joined up, but as soon as they renamed it Women's Day Off, everyone came out. And I just wondered, were you there on that day?
2: Uh, Yep, I was like 10. Yep. (laughs) With my mum.
1: Yeah, we just had another one. Is it an, an annual thing, or was it just that it happened a couple of days ago again as a response to something else? No, I think it's uh, basically um, um, it's still fourteen percent
2: that women are are have uh, wages less than guys. So um, I think we, we, even though we have that that gap is the least in the world today in Iceland, bragging. Sorry, <laughs> we still. Um, we're still trying to get rid of it. So, so women went yesterday, um, left their jobs and went at 14.38 o'clock uh, because that's how much percentage there is in the gap uh, down, downtown and protested and, and uh, this really nice footage on them on YouTube now. They're like really chanting. I was really proud of them.
1: But this, this nine, what I'm interested in is um, your nine, ten-year-old self who went out there, I'm guessing like with your family, um, whether or not that kind of sowed the seeds of what you generally refer to as kind of punk and hardcore, whether or not that gave you that kind of punk and hardcore feeling to see all the women in your community get up and stand up for themselves and do what they wanted to.
2: Yeah, um, I think I'm... Yeah, totally. It had a big effect on me, and and I was in the music scene in Iceland as a teenager, and part of it, and it was half of it was girls, and I was really brought up with the girls are just as important and as strong as guys. So it wasn't until I went abroad where I I would hit walls, you know. So and I was like maybe 30 years old or something, and I'd be like, what, you know? <laughs> So maybe that's why I, I kind of like thought I should um, put light on this, you know, and try to uh, show other women, you know, and guys that there is this other way that that exists and functions where
1: um, where we are equal, you know. If we're going to take it back to some of the stuff that's happening now. Some of the people here will have seen the, the VR exhibition that's happening in this building. And the new video uh, has the capacity for you to use your hands in it. And I wondered, are these kind of representations of your hands that we're seeing and, and the gestures? Are these gestures that you make and what, what do those gestures tell us?
2: Oh, you're talking about the family video? Yeah, this is a video uh, me and James married it with Auntie Huang, And they're both here with us tonight, today. In the room, uh, yes, I think it was something we talked about from the beginning. I think out of all the songs, this is the one song of the album that, for me, was like almost like the mother, the core of the the whole album. And we started talking about this this song a lot. You know the fact that the character of the album she does this kind of backward bend, and it's almost it's like a, a way of self help. So. Um, and then she has this wound here, she has to deal with, and she sews it herself with her hands, and then she um, stands up and walks away. So it's a really simple um, thing, but, uh, but it, it kind of echoes through the whole album again and again. And um, so I think the hands you're talking about are actually Andy Huang's uh, representation of that. But, uh, but it's been a really uh, enjoyable uh, collaboration between me, Andy and James. We've, we've done a few of the videos of the album together and so that sort of came out of that,
1: yeah. You mentioned before about gesture and kind of movement and the way that movements can reflect sound or amplify sound. And I wondered if that was... Um, if you could expand a little bit more about gesture and the way that you use your hands particularly in that video and um, what that's saying?
2: Yeah, I guess I understand enough after performing since I was a teenager that I'm not exactly a dancer. I'm, I'm obviously a musician, but I've kind of noticed there are certain movements that are almost, when they go really simple, they go shamanistic and they can be like sort of an entry point into um, the emotion. And also what I'm always, always trying to do is unite the, the music and the visual and the physical and the uh, spiritual and the emotional. And uh, it's obviously a very ambitious task. And most of the time I don't succeed, but it's always that effort there. And, and once in a while it, it happens. Like they all, they all line up and, and there's like some liberation happens and you get rid of all... The luggage, and you get to continue your journey, and and for me, those kind of movements, I think they're I, I think I've tried to tap into them as something really, really simple and really ancient, and something that you know, in the way like something like yoga or tai chi or or these things, um, they are like uh, keys to uh, your body and and something quite spiritual and 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 uh, primordial, that can if you tap, if you do the right rhythm, which obviously pop music is a lot about, that it's almost like a mantra that you repeat and you repeat and you repeat, and it receives its magic and it's like, and you go to the next level. So it's it's some
1: sort of an effort to to try to embrace that. So how much repetition and kind of next leveling did you have to do for the string arrangements that you took from Vulnakura and made into another piece, another album, which you're now taking out live? Well, maybe that was
2: different because it wasn't literally physical. I mean, actually, the arrangements for me is actually the other part of my brain or whatever, uh, where it's more the sort of music nerd in me I will usually write most of my songs walking outside in nature and it'd be very impulsive and I don't know exactly what I'm doing. And then once I've sort of done that, I will sit down and let some time pass and then I'll be like, oh, like the academic in me will kind of sit there and go, oh, this needs violas, you know, 10 violas. And then I'll sit for a month and just work on that. And the string arrangements for Vullnukura, they took me way longer than writing the album or, or singing it or doing the lyrics. Like they took me like a year to do or something. And, and it's kind of, it's almost, I really, I did a lot of embroidery and knitting as a kid and crocheting and the arrangements really tap into that sort of feminine tradition where you, it's like needlework and um, I really in, in, enjoy it. It's very, it takes a lot of time but then I work with uh, local Icelandic musicians and, and we have a, like a different kind of relationship um, because uh, it's not about, oh, it costs billion and you go to the studio and it takes two hours to record it. Like in the big cities in Iceland, you actually just hang out together, cook together and, and, and rehearse together. And, and you meet many, for example, the choir that I worked with for Biophilia uh, we would meet for four hours once a week for four months. And so it took like a really long time um, to develop the arrangements. I would start with the, the, all the chords, and then we would like move things up and down octaves and do all the uh, dynamics together in the room. So so that's like another part of me almost, like, uh, like almost similar to first the the music nerd in me that does the arrangements, and then the person, you know, because I was in bands for 10 years, so working with the musicians on the ground like that is very like that, you know, where you sort of are with a group of people and you you get stuff done,
1: you know? So were the string arrangements about feeling like you really wanted, that this was the right record sonically to flex that muscle of string arrangement which you'd been doing for a long time? or other arrangements, and that this was an opportunity to do it? Or was it about needing another dose, the kind of the cure, needing a kind of an extra strong dose through the reducing it all down to the most emotional components of the record?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's a bit of both. You know, I try to, to tap into both things. Like, every album has sort of an emotional theme, and I really believe in... That the the few moments you get it right, which is not very good percentage, but it is when you manage to unite the craft, and 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 you manage to unite your collaborators and the emotion and the the a sort of that you the story you're telling is not just full of ego and self indulgence, but it's actually the more universal it is, the better. So it's it's like some strange. uh, line, line you walk between sort of uh, the self and the selflessness, you know. And uh, I really, uh, but with this string arrangement, yes, for sure. It, it going back to Mulnikura, it was definitely about me sitting hours and hours and and getting, getting the, getting it totally right, and to marry it with the um, the emotion. I mean, I think most albums before it's all kind of happened together like the arrangement and the beats and the and the and the melodies and the lyrics and everything has kind of grown up side by side but Volnikoru was t- top, very topsy turvy you know it was like the melody just came like first with some crazy ass lyrics and i was like oops should i like refine them you know ever that I read about that book. It in books, you know. But then I was like, oh, "No, it, it, it will. This album will just lose everything if I do that." So I, I think I, I think also because the, the subject matter was so raw and visceral, and I was kind of scared of it to be honest. Um, I felt the way to deal with it was almost make the string arrangement ten times more graceful or ten times more caring, like Band-Aid, like complex, woven, refined. You know, the fact that it took me five minutes to write a song, but it took me like three months to do a string arrangement to it kind of made sense in some weird
1: way. There's a, For me, the kind of the key moment in the strings album is there's a, a viola organista version of Black Lake, which has a, a section in it maybe about four minutes in where it's just a string um, I may not be just a string, but it's just a sound. And so the song has kind of broken down to this one very universal sounding exposition, a sonic exposition of raw pain. And you carry it through for maybe a minute before that. the, the warmth and the support that you're talking through in the strings comes back again. And I wondered whether or not, like, how... how you uh, walked that line between an intensity of emotion that people can stay with and when you need to kind of bring people back into a more comfortable place? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean,
2: I don't know, to be honest, it's really intuitive. And, and also because obviously I do a lot of gigs and when you've done as many gigs as I've done, you kind of learn that you can, in the room with people, you can really feel like how far you can push it and it's fun sometimes to to just go and push it and push and take it further, 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 further and then reel in. But with, with a recording, that's very different, right? Because you that what you've made has to make sense in all these different rooms around the world. So I think you can, I believe that you can be just as um, immersive or, or you can be just as visceral if you want you know it doesn't always have to be visceral um, uh, but I think if there's a certain grace or refinement that if you weave around it in in the arranging and also just in the, in the mix in the sound and the mastering uh, there's a lot a lot happens there and then it becomes this kind of more um, spongy west vessel that can take all the different uh, speakers and all the different rooms it will eventually travel to. So, but I, I don't think you have to sacrifice any of the, um, the emergency or the, you know, I think it could still be there, but it's just a question
1: of how you wrap it up, you know? So for the people here that are making music, to kind of feel what you feel, to do it, to allow yourself the freedom of doing it, and then maybe ask yourself afterwards whether or not you want to make any changes, but not to edit yourself in the moment.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, also, but it, but I think very much, for me at least now, what we're talking about is very much how I did You know, um, not always, I mean, it's only a few times in our life in each person's life, that you have that sort of emergency kind of feeling that you're dealing with. And and, uh, if you do that every single album, it's going to be boring or or it's going to lose its uh, power or importance, you know? I I think the album before was very much, for me, about celebration of uh, sound, the galaxy, music, uh, celebrational and that was done in a very different way, and, and I think that's just as important. I, I think I like all emotions to be equally important, you know, also the celebrational, the shy. I also love music that's like just faffing about in your, um, in your um, kitchen music, you know, I, and making toast. I think that's very important music too. What know? are your toast tunes at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got, uh, you mean uh, to play around at the yeah, house? Like you're faffing around in the kitchen, music. Good question. Uh, I've been listening a lot to this R&B singer from East London called Neo. It's kind of ha- very happy and lucky, go lucky. I mean, that, that music's just as
1: important, I think. Absolutely. Um, so, I wondered how the string arrangements that you embarked on relate to the scorebooks that you've been working on for, I believe, the last eight years. What kind of undertaking has that been? How much work is that?
2: Yeah, I mean, when I did Biophilia, uh, we moved to an island in the Caribbean and I rented this house. And we, I started mapping out what musicology was for me. And I was like so excited about um, touchscreens. And I was like, wow, finally this this thing has arrived where I can actually map out uh, how I feel, you know, about musicology. And it's like rhythm that's, you know, counterpoint, that's obviously pendulums, you know, like arpeggios, there's lightnings. And, and then I wrote the songs from that. And there was something that happened that f- for me then because I was kind of going back to... My my music school years. I went to music school from five to fifteen, and and me kind of thinking, okay, I'm that age now where I'm like, okay, I'm gonna like come up with the version the educational system that I would have liked to attend it myself, and that I can share to others. Kind of, it's that it's that moment, and one of the things that came up was me wanting to also erase this difference between notation and midi and there was a lot this was in 2008-9 and there was a lot of negativity amongst my fellow musicians in like streaming downloading like how to sell me how to make a living and all this kind of stuff and I was thinking well you know this idea of the cd that was only something that was around for 20 years maybe 30 and, and that wasn't 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Uh, documentation on music is, is kind of timeless, but it's different methods for different uh, periods, you know? So I thought, okay, let's put online MIDI that you can sell, and people could print it out and play it on their pipe organ, or they could make their um, karaoke machine play it, and you could sing on top, or you could make it into, uh, or you can just buy the audio recording, but you can watch the MIDI files. So it's just basically about like blurring these lines and trying to update it to like now. And and one of the things that came out of that was m- my scores, and I was like, and I've been asked for since I was a teenager, like. Oh, you want to do those kind of acoustic guitar books, you know the boy Scout like of of your songs and I'm like, hmm, I don't know somehow that doesn't feel right and and I didn't know back then like like why, but I think now that I'm older and a bit more experienced, um, just a bit there, um, I think I, I, it's kind of makes more s- sense to me now that it, obviously I'm not making guitar music and I'm not part of this canon. Which is the rock and roll sort of three chord thing, which is obviously very important and everything. But I'm I'm kind of more uh, somewhere else, and I think what we wanted to to do was um, was uh, make versions of the songs that were um, you could play it for a person who just started to play keyboard, if it's piano, harpsichord, or pipe organ a person who studied for like five years or person who studied for like 10 years. So it's like various uh, difficulties, you know. Um, so so we started taking all the arrangements from each song and tried to make it all into uh, like just a piano arrangement. And uh, it, it actually it is a project that started 2008, like I said, with, you know, in the beginning of Biophilia, but it's just ready now, like eight years later, because it, just, it was really time-consuming. And also, one more reason, sorry to, <laughs> for the long answer, continue. Is, um, is we wanted to blur, with the people I work a lot with, Eminem from Paris, who are the uh, designers I work with, and we wanted to blur this line between um, notation and font, and, and what is that? You know, why isn't is this classical notation, you know, from a few hundred years ago, it's a bit boring, and why it doesn't have a font? And it, so that kind of basically makes smoke come out of all the uh, uh, printing machines. So that's been like a riddle we've been trying to solve the last year or so, but I think we've solved it now, and we've got some sort of a crazy notation, font. So there is a book coming out with uh, a selection of my songs uh, from the last 15 years. Uh, This thick (laughs) Uh, with uh, uh, versions uh, for keyboard to be played.
1: I wondered what you learned about arrangement from some of the people you worked with early on before you started doing your own arrangements, even though you've been doing those for 20 years now. Can you tell us about some of the nuggets you picked up from the people who were involved in some of those early records, maybe Talvin Singh or a bit later on Deodato?
2: Yeah, I think I stopped my music school at 15. <laughs> and um, and I, I guess part of me has always looked at uh, this kind of... Um, my work as school, you know? And especially the, the bit uh, about the arrangements is maybe most obvious. And on uh, my first album... Tav Singh took that, what we had at that time, that's of two songs to to Bombay and recorded arrangements to them basically because we had no budget and we couldn't go there ourselves. And he was going there anyway and everything was very DIY. And then he brought back Venus as a boy and uh, come to me, those two arrangements. Um, And then... On the next album, post, I got Umar Deodato to do a couple of arrangements for me, uh, and then I got more involved. I would um, write several of the melodies that the, the that the violins play, and I would sit next to Deodato and and either sing them for him or play them on a piano, and. Uh, and he would like, and, and the chords, for example, in Isobel or Hyperballat, these are my chords and my uh, melodies. But I didn't orchestrate them. And then, I mean, it, it's going to be a very long answer if I go through every album. But uh, And then homogenic, I was more brave. And I literally almost did the string arrangement for uh, Bachelorette. And yoga was very, like... I, play, I actually played them on a the synthesizer and, uh, and played them all with string sounds. And then Umar Teatato would hear that and then he would orchestrate it. So it, literally every album was a little bit step forward. And then on um, Vespatine, it was more a huge orchestra. It was a panoramic sound. So yeah, I got more involved. And then on Medulla... I did all the arrangements myself, like with the choir and everything. And um, and that was maybe easier for me because that was me working with the human voice, which is probably something you know I'm very familiar with. And then the brass arrangements on Volta and then the choir arrangements. Uh, I was on um, Biophilia. You know, I was totally like printing them out and, and then handing them out to people the members, and and on Vulni Kura it was, I did it, you know, uh, doing also all the dynamics and like everything on the score. So it's been a really, really slow, gradual uh, progression. But I definitely, yes, with Talvin Singh, with Umir Teotato, it's been really helpful. Also Vince Mendoza, he was very um, involved in the uh, Vespertine album and, and Matt Robertson has been my musical director f- for my live gigs, and he's been really helpful with hear, listening to the album versions and helping me to, uh, if, if it's something that needs, to, let's say a choir needs to be arranged for strings, he will help me like transfer it between instruments. But uh, yeah, but I'm getting more and more self-sufficient. <laughs> like I'm 95% now.
1: What do you think your teacher, Mr. Bergeson, from your kind of early days at school, would think about your kind of uh, wheeling back into a world that he would recognise as more of the music school than the kind of like... Because he was the guy, wasn't he, who told you that you could do things differently and introduced you to some of the other um, musicians who were maybe kind of on the left field of the classical realm. Do, Do you think that he would... What do you think he would think about the work you're doing now? Hmm. A, I meet him in the pool all the day. Okay, all the um, all the time. Oh, sorry. So this th- isn't a theoretical question. This could be an actual one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's Iceland for you. Um, hmm. I don't know. I'd have to ask him. I bet some of these uh, teachers I had are rolling their eyes and and going like, I told you. You know. Uh, but I mean, I, but I still think we all know this kind of, the arrogance of youth <laughs> is important because it defines you. And, and you know, what Stravinsky said in his little uh, short book, which I can't remember the name of now, which uh, was basically based on lectures he did, was like, uh, you know, it's great to hate, <laughs> which basically means... Uh, when you are starting out and you kind of can't stand 90% of the music out there, you're going like, I hate trombones. I hate them so much. I'm about to explode. And, you know, break beats. I've had enough of it. You know, it's it's kind of cool to just do it, you know. Just really hate it. And when I was in school, I was like, I can't stand Bach and Beethoven. They're just German old guys. And, and you just just have to just be furious. Just totally go there. And and but But remember, though, that it's about helping as a tool to help you you start knowing what you don't want and then, but it's it's the point is to figure out what you want and once you figure out what you want you have to water that and make that grow, so this kind of great to hate business is sort of about pulling out all the weeds and really like focusing and trying to sort of figure out what your palette is you know, and then what your entry point is, if you readdress strings like I did I'm totally guilty of, I so slagged them off in my teenage years, uh, is what in what roundabout way are you gonna come and 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 include it again and then from a different point of view. And I think that is really interesting too. That's sort of what makes us human and it also gives sense of time. Like I love that when you listen to musicians, what they did when they were 15 and what they did when they were 40 and then again when they were 70. And the, the fact that they're kind of like, referring back and forth between stuff and, and I find that really exciting, you know.
1: I think it's always very wonderful to keep a hard edge of the things that you're not into as much as it is to embrace the things that you love. You talked about kind of pulling up the weeds. What weeds are you pulling up at the moment? Which are the things that are out? <laughs> it's
2: like in and out of fashion. <laughs>
1: Yeah. fashion, it's just feeling, isn't it? Yeah, what are you not feeling? It's
2: totally... Um, good question. I'm obviously a bit bored with strings at the moment. It, it, it's very... That teenage side of me, which sort of... I OD on something. I love it so much, and I, it, it goes over the top, and then I'm just like... <gasps> I can never have that ever again. But, I mean, I'll see how long it lasts. I mean, I did have strings, like I said before... From '93 all the way up to Medulla, so that was like 10 years, and then I had 10 years of like I can never hear strings ever again, and then when I came back to Wulneckura, maybe that was one of the reasons why they were so fresh to me, because I put them on, on salts for 10 years, but um, um, good question. Yeah, I mean I obviously Wulneckura was very narrative, wasn't it, and 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 one of I I don't listen to that much narrative music at my house. I really like music that's more complex and more layered and more instrumental, actually. But when singers sing, I want them to be, like, 1,000%. And so that's a good question with a narrative element. Like, um, yeah, I, I, I probably can't say anything more at this moment but there's definitely a lot of question marks there right now for me like how narrative can a narrative be
1: mm. <laughs> Ooh. Mm. <laughs> we'll let that one just <laughs> sit there for a minute um so when you're not arranging strings which you're not doing so much of at this moment um i get the impression from what you've been saying that you spend a lot of your time editing that 90 percent of your music time is spent editing Um, What does that kind of look like? What does that mean? Yeah, I think I obviously started using Pro
2: Tools in 1999 and that's where I spend 90% of my time. And I just really, really love editing. And when I did uh, Vespertine, I did it with Sibelius. Mm -hmm. and, um, And... and then I would record things and because I, it was all like microbeats which I was collecting all these microbeats and then uh, just using audio files and, and then the whole idea with Vespertine that it was like basically more than 100 channels each song but it would just take forever to do all the levels and it was, had this microscopic element to it which was take the tiniest beat and then zoom in and make it huge and, and then just going over it, so it was a lot about the hours and the hours and the hours you spent on just editing and doing levels, like a big jigsaw puzzle. And I really enjoyed that at that time because I'd just done homogenic, which was the opposite, which was basically like Led Zeppelin or something. Huge distorted beats, huge strings, huge drama, like hat-banging like myself through the concerts, screaming at the top of my lungs. And then getting really bored with it and just going, okay, I want to do the opposite. I want to do secrets and and billion details. I don't know if this is helpful or not, especially for you students, but I definitely noticed after I um, have looked around, because now I've been editing for 17 years, um, and I'm a much, I'm a lot, that's sort of my tool. I'm not a live mixer. I'm not like a lot of stuff, but I'm, I'm actually pretty, Good editor is um, <clears throat> that I've noticed that a lot of film directors they have uh, women editors, and um, like you know Coppola and and y- you name like ten different women editors, and I think women are really good at this. You know they're really good at zooming out, at seeing the big picture, and and connecting all the dots, and and editing. It's very much about that and, and kinda like not leaving anything out. Like, okay, you've got twelve kids, you're not just gonna feed nine of them and leave three of them in the cold. You gotta fucking include all of them and, and you gotta make them all coexist and, and make them be friends. And and yes, there's people there's aggression, there's problems, there's all these things, but it's this there's, there's uh, everything has permission or allowance to be there and it just takes time and it's like about equilibrium and, and, uh, and like I remember once spending like uh, two weeks on doing some crazy vocal arrangement and Alejandro Arca coming and hearing it and, and he, you know Alejandro being Alejandro got like one tear in his eye and he was just like oh it's like this it's like this form of praying you do and I was so flattered. I don't think I've ever been that flattered. But I, I was like, oh, wow. I've never really thought about it that way. But you basically are just fine tuning and, and we, it's like weaving something. And you just spend like hours and hours on it and then you sort of get it into the, the form you want it to be.
1: What's your preferred kind of setup? What do you prefer to use? I, I like Sibelius and I like, uh, I use it a lot actually
2: even for beats. I like, uh, I like a lot writing like beats on Sibelius and then, and, and uh, on really weird like chunky sounds and then transferring it to, to uh, live musicians or, 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 or or what I did a lot for the string arrangement for Vulnukura, for example, I, I use Melodyne a lot. I love Melodyne and I will, put like all my vocal takes, I'll take and I will make one of it and then I will make many of the same one and then I will make like harmonies. So there's like five note harmonies, but no two harmonies will be the same. So I will spend weeks on like harmonies that you know you can maybe hear like in the beginning of Thunderbolts in the choir arrangement, maybe it's the most obvious. Um, so, um, and then I will transfer that to, into Sibelius, into the strings. But, but maybe the melodies came from me originally improvising. And then I will take that and move it into uh, Pro Tools. And so I, I will do a ba- lot of back and forth and, and until it sort of uh, finds its little, you know, uh, home.
1: I mean you've obviously always had a very highly evolved sense of what, what a piece of music could do. But do you think like generally people who listen to music have become more evolved as well, like more used to hearing different time signatures or different ways of doing things?
2: Hmm, good question. Hmm, I think so. I wonder sometimes how much things actually change. <laughs> Uh, I think definitely, like, I keep thinking of this kind of imaginary place 200 years ago, which maybe was in somewhere, I don't know where, actually. But that that folk music was very important. It had a lot of patterns. You know, for example, let's say music of North Africa. It had poetry. It had, had, you know, intellectualism, you know, of poetry. It had... um, you know, pagan tribal patterns, rhythmic, rhythms. It had uh, beautiful uh, expressions of performers, you know, like, um, and it had uh, songwriting, you know, it had improvisation. It, so, I, I mean, I think of myself in that sort of box. I, try, I, I think of myself doing 21st century, like folk music in that sense, that it is about, taking a uh, day-to-day life, making a pop song out of it. Or I, I prefer the word folk, actually. And then that it can have a tribal rhythm because we all like dancing. And, and it, it can have a bit of poetry and, and a bit of uh, the mind and the spirit, obviously, and emotions. And I also love the performative aspect of it. That I love... Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I had the... Um, the viola organista is that I also love this kind of... Or Manu Telako, who uh, the percussionist that performed with me live, this kind of... To have a soloist in a performance. I, and uh, I really love that
1: too. So you, you're talking about cultures elsewhere in the world that have this. But Northern culture, Arctic Circle culture has this too. And the, the difference between... Maybe I might see as a British person, the separation between song and poetry is collapsed, isn't it? Maybe, could you tell us the last time you did Vicky Vacky, for example?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of funny one, actually, with Icelandic music. I think maybe because I, it, so much of it went through my skin as a child, that by the time I made my own music, I was doing the it's the great to hate message. where I was like, I don't want to, you know, like I just thought it was too much nationalistic thing going on, and too much Viking helmet shit. So... I was just like, okay, we need to to do now. We need to like be, like when I was in the punk years, I was like, okay, we need music written by a woman or a girl about now, not old stuff. And then I think then uh, the one time when I tried to reference my Icelandic roots was in Homogenic, where after three years being in in, um, the heat of London with all the beats, I was like, okay, I want to now invent what is an Icelandic techno beat. And obviously it's volcanic, you know, and did all these distorted big beats. And, um, but then um, after homogenic, it happened to be for me that Iceland sort of became in fashion. And it was like everybody shooting car commercials there and stuff. And I was like, hmm, I don't know about this. Like I got really skeptical. And I was like... And then Volta, for me, was almost a statement against this. Like me being a bit of a trying, you know, hard, playing hard to get. When I was like, okay, I'm, I live on a boat. I'm not from a country, you know. And uh, and just being like multi and And just thinking, okay, nationalism is cool, yes. But it can be just, you know, like racist and fascist. And it can just go, also this cliche, you know. Of, you know, woolen sweater and, and dancing wiki you know. I was like, hmm, I don't know about this. like I, Or at least I need to approach it from a different point of view. And actually, funny you mention wiki because uh, on Wulnukura, a song called Atom Dance was my attempt to kind of address this in a very, very roundabout way because... I was reading Sufi poems and being very obsessed with this kind of devotional um, um, Sufi, Sufism. And uh, and then I was like, okay, how would I do this in Icelandic? You know, what, what we must have had this, but it was just suffocated by the rednecks or something. And then just finding it and, and looking for it. And I actually, that's the one lyric on Vullegora I co-wrote with someone. And with my very good friend, Otni Eyr, who is a philosopher slash author. And she's like a um, really, really, we talk a lot about stuff. And uh, we actually wrote that lyric together, uh, trying to make an Icelandic, Vikiwaki Sufi song. And that's one of the reasons why it's in 5.4, because it... Uh, it's sort of like, uh, it's more cyclical and more about like turning in circles. And wikiwagi is actually turning in circles, which obviously the whirling dervishes do in, in Sufism. So it, it's sort of, uh, I try to kind of uh, come, uh, what, what actually archaeologists are finding out more and more is that the Viking history we were told in school wasn't so black and white it was actually people came to Iceland earlier like probably in the 600s we've been told 800s but actually 600s and there's a lot of Phoenician Celtic and very like um, more poetic bohemian sort of you know stuff that was is and the, and also the, how we've been taught the Nordic mythology is not so like kind of hooliganist. You know, it, it's more like it actually really entwined with Sufism and, and all the other spiritual uh, disciplines that were happening in, in Europe, in the Middle East at the time. So I've been sort of uh, like playing and reading about those and who knows, I might even go into this in... Um, my old age or something.
1: <laughs> you, you mentioned the kind of Sufi music and I noticed you've been playing a couple of Bida Parveen songs recently, A uh, incredible Pakistani Sufi singer. What is it about her voice and her expression that appeals to you? Yeah, I just
2: heard her and I was just immediately blown away and I just went and got all her albums and drove my family nuts because I would just listen to it like all day, every day for... Couple of months. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think. I, I. mean, I'm not really an expert at all on on this kind of music, and I'm not going to pretend I am. But from my little point of view, I think it is a discipline that has been very uh, monopolized by guys, and actually, m- women can't really sing that music much. But she totally just kind of took it and made it like raw and emotional and more earthy for me, like when I listen to it it's more connected to like the body it's not so cerebral and I can just really connect to it and and when I, the, those mashups I played yesterday which bragging I actually did myself um, I, I did those mashups as a birthday present a year ago to Triangle label because I was hanging out with Rapid and and Lotic and all these guys, and they none of them had vocalists. And there was all these debates after a few drinks, like what sort of vocals would fit this music. And I'm like, and they were like, none. And I was like, well, let me prove you wrong. <laughs> and, and and there there are singers out there that are that primordial and that sort of, you know, like have that thing, but it, but that sophisticated. So I actually spent uh, a week editing Abita Parvin and actually a Fado singer, Marisa, and several other singers to triangle beats. But I did it in Pro Tools, so I time-stretched it and actually put a lot of work into it. And then I played it for them that night as, a, as their present. <laughs> and uh, it was really, really fun. But uh, I, yeah, she's something else. She's obviously like just got some very talking shamanistic, very
1: divine connections, you know? I mean, I I want to ask about your voice shortly, but while we're kind of talking about other people, can you tell me about your kind of creative relationship with Anoni?
2: Yeah, we um, met, I don't know, it must be a long, 12 years ago or something now, 11. And... um, New York and she immediately became one of my best friends and we just talk and talk and talk when we meet and it's really fun she's obviously very emotional and I think and she's kind of I feel she's more like an Icelandic person sorry it's a bit strange thing to say but uh I was I don't know why but I was hanging out with a lot of um people in New York that were maybe weren't that mushy and and then obviously we would start like a, a a talk about in the environment and urban and pollution and stuff like that. And and she sang on Volta, which which I you know I I did that song about the pregnant suicide bomber and and uh, and, uh, and I only came to Jamaica where we recorded the vocals to Dull Flame of Desire and did that song Flierta which she actually edited and and that was like her her work and we've sort of just had these conversations ever, ever since, you know like I will play her my albums before they're ready and she will comment on it and she will play me her albums and I will comment on it and uh, and we give each other advice and and she's just one of the most magical beings in my life I'm, I'm very grateful to have her
1: So back to you then for one moment um We'll talk about voice a bit and then pass some questions out to you good people. But I understand you've been uh, taking a new kind of training for the last three years. You know, obviously with someone who has such a voice already, I guess maybe sometimes it's surprising the fact that you would even still continue training. But I understand you've been using a new technique for the last few years. Can you tell us what that is and what that involves?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the voice is very interesting instrument obviously because you got uh, your body is obviously the instrument and then you got issues like like time and emotion which can sometimes uh, fuck you up but I try to use it in my advantage you know and uh, I, I used to like swear a lot when in my 20s when I was touring with bands and let's just say there was a lot of drinking involved and I had to kind of go early to bed and behave because there was a gig the next day and stuff and I was, would like sulk and moan but then I was actually grateful because it, I ended up with better pair um, of <laughs> insights. <laughs> and and you know so 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 I think taking care of yourself actually is, is boring but it's actually a good thing um, supposed to be right but um, but I mean, I've, I've always kind of you know let rip in between, so I, I don't feel like starved or anything. And uh, I, I kind of like letting rip, uh, not all the time anyway. I like it to be special, so that works really well. Um, but I mean, I've had to kind of slowly kind of be careful what I eat. Um, maybe it started like eight years ago where I would have to be uh, careful about gluten and sugar and things like this. I would uh, get horse, you know, if I eat those things. And um, so, I mean, that's kind of really mundane and boring, but it's actually like, but if you look at other people, they have to like polish their guitars and put new strings in them and fix the necks and, you know, they have to do all this shit. When it comes to technique, I mean, I kind of was self-taught and learned mostly singing outdoors, blasting at the top of my lungs and singing really quietly. So basically my voice is a very acoustic instrument. Um, that's something that I'm, I'm constantly aware of. I will maybe do a whole tour and I will stop, do those kind of crazy dynamics and just start to like project into the microphone more and more and we'll lose the dynamic. And then I will the tour will be over and I will like start walking outside again and get my dynamics back. So it's kind of like goes back and forth between, be, between being like this uh, uh, microphone situation and not, you know, and I quite like that. Then when it comes to teachers, I've started having teachers maybe, I don't know, eight years ago when I ran into problems and uh they taught me several tricks i can use that are very helpful and um and actually um and one thing i have to do is just uh, rest more you know and and be more focused on um, um yeah i don't know i mean it's a comp- i find sometimes when my voice stops like back back in the old days when i was touring with the sugar keeps and we had to like stop touring and just go on a beach somewhere, it usually was also just a spiritual thing, like also like an emotional thing, like we're not meant to do one gig a night for three months now. It's not right. So usually it's been kind of like, uh, even though we are following the the voice, it's actually something that we all want to do anyway, you know. So uh, right now I'm, I'm kind of more focused on I want to record a lot, and I've kind of almost done with my album. I've done all the vocals, so I'm really happy with that. and to just that's really where my headset is, is right now, is to just be in a sublime situation where I can be walk outside, work on melodies, come back, you, know, record them, and even blur that line more, you know, And trying to make a studio I can actually take with me on my walks. Sometimes I feel like I write, I sing the best when I'm on the top of a mountain, and then I come inside the studio and I'm like imitating that experience. So I want to try to actually make a, a recording facilities that I can take with me on my hikes, but it would have to be really low-fi though, because you know, uh, because you
1: don't want to carry heavy shit on your shoulders when you're singing. So when will you know? You know, you, you say you finished the vocals. When will you know the kind of the character? Like how far down the line does that come? When you know the main character of an album, like what she dreams about, or what she wears, or what her tarot card is, as you said. Like when will that come? Well, I
2: think it's those things always come afterwards. Like I'll first just kind of just write the only songs I can write. I mean, sometimes when I do those interviews, I drink five liters of cappuccinos and I sound like I know it all, but uh, I actually don't. I'm like, when I'm writing, I'm I'm clueless and I just write any given day I write, I just write the only song I can write that particular day. There's, there's, if I, you know, I don't want to make it look like I said, I go, ooh, what sort of song should I write today? Because there's like, no way at all. But, uh, but I mean, it's more afterwards and kind of like, once I've kind of mixed arrange the album, which which I'm doing now, and then I mix it, and you master it, which is a very big thing for me, and then you've heard it so many times that you can actually, and time has passed, maybe two years from or three even, from you wrote the first song, and then you go, oh my God, that song's actually about this, and then you start seeing what connects the dots, and you go, oh, this album is green. You know, like, you just get those little... Like, and then you kind of try to work out what uh, arch- archetype made this album. And, and that sounds maybe very pretentious, but uh, I think maybe it's been a really pr- slow progression for me with the visual things because I was for 10 years in bands in my teenage years and we would get photographers and video directors and all these people and we'd be like punk snobs. We'd be like, oh, people who think about visuals are superficial and the fashiony types, and we we don't. We're just punks and we don't care. And then you we get photos and then be like, what? (laughs) Like that does not look like the song at all. So I think very very I got really lucky because it's very very slow progression. I thought actually, if you just think, okay, this album is very black and white or these songs are very, just use this as rule of thumb. And it can be, it can help make the bridge to the directors you work with and with the photographers you work with. And and it's, it's kind of like a good beginning point uh, to have sort of the, those kind of things cleared, you know. And then, you know, even though you have these, you know uh, things like okay for example biophilia was the element table all these uh, things in the element table and 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 electric blue and copper and and the music teacher who's an airhead with this kind of red afro uh, with her head in the clouds and and she's like um, kind pedagogy you know with nature and and music trying to unite the two so I got a harp I like got like a crystal, you know that seems really limiting but but when you walk into work with a director or a photo a photographer, they actually seem to welcome these kind of things because then they can actually put thousands of stuff to that sort of a skeleton and and put their own um, um, world to it and I actually found with the directors who are really talented and really secure in their own creativity, they can actually both take on these kind of information and add to it like a double or triple from their own universe. So And then it becomes this kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. But that's always done after the album's finished, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: So can you tell us about your relationship with microphones then? What do you like to use? How important... is the way that you use or distinct is the way that you use microphones? Well,
2: (laughs) microphones uh, for me are, um, I think I probably deal with them in the same way I deal with everything. I'm like, it's either, do you have this in English? Like either the ankles or the ears? Mm, It's all or nothing. Yeah, like like extremes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I like really dry private like dictaphone, like not like documentarian style, and then I like the most like I've recorded actually a lot of vocals in a microphone called Sound Soundfield, and you're actually not meant to record vocals on it. It's sort of a microphone you put in the center of a room. If you want to record a cricket in the corner over there, so uh, I, for example, recorded uh, a song like Modern Things on that and I would just walk up to it and then walk back in the corner and treat it like it was this kind of, take in the whole room. And I've used that when I want to get something really sensual, you know, like for example, cocoon from Vespertine, because it just catches every, like, <sighs> all these kind of noises. And then I also, obviously, I've been singing in in microphone like this, exactly same, sure, 58. Since I was a teenager, and I actually record quite a lot of my vocals just in the, in on my laptop with two speakers and actually with the instrumental playing out of the speakers, so with no headphones and just in a sure, because obviously I learned to sing live, you know, at a at a gig, you know. So um, and then there's the other way, which is sort of. Uh, the songs that I've written more when I'm walking outside, then I want my voices to be more acoustic, with a lack of a better word. That maybe is more like this: the color sound field. Also, there was this incredible Finnish guy who in 97, made a wooden microphone and sent me in the post. He made two microphones, and he sent one to me, and one to Michael Jackson. What? <laughs> and I recorded a lot of songs in that. That one is really sober. It's very like, very Finnish in a way. <laughs> like very, like, not, like very, yeah, sober I think is the best description of it. It doesn't have any additional fluff. It's very like, but, um, but I mean, I think I also, I'm saying all this sounding like I'm like a mic nerd. But I'm actually. I come from this kind of heads, maybe the punk headspace that it's not about the gear. It's about you know if you want something, you you should make it with your voice. You know if you want intimacy or you want like like to 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 create it with your voice. You know and and um, so I've I've you know and and the first ten years of my singing was done in touchy. Punk clubs, and I actually the first two or three years I sang through a bass amp, and uh, because the bass amp had two plugs, the one we had, and uh, and the bass player went through one, and I went through the other one, so you couldn't f- afford a PA. So uh, that's probably where my my shrieks come from, because I was just trying to kind of be
1: heard in a, in a, in in the punk club. What kind of songs do you like to sing when you're? or sing along to when you're like in the car or when you're hanging about at home? Other people's songs, what, what songs do you sing? R&B, probably. Mm-hmm. Any particular era, like 90s or mm-hmm. more like now? All, all the eras.
2: I, I mean, I like this, there's like a cherry from each year, year, maybe.
1: Who are the kind of good R&B singers to sing to in the bath? Um, oh my God, there's so many. Uh, I'm, I love Jack again. And
2: and uh, I mean, I, R&B unites the families, isn't it? It's the one music everybody, well, most people like. So I like I like this kind of driving in the car really loud, and everybody sing along, you know, and R&B is good for that, you know, and you can just disappear into the song, and you don't hear the sound of your voice that
1: much. So I think that's quite um, cathargic, so, last one from me before we hand it out to the participants. Um, yeah, I can go on forever. <laughs> just, um, I've heard you talk about the importance of being the same inside and out in order for you to be able to make the music that you make and to be creative. I think that's a really interesting kind of transparency to get. And I wondered how you achieve that. How do you, what do you have to do to get yourself in that point where you are the same Inside and out. Yeah.
2: You make it sound so simple. Um, Yeah, obviously, I'm like all of us. You know, we're all trying to do this. And I'm... It's just work in progress, isn't it? And I tend to find that the subconscious or the visceral stuff comes first. You know, it's... That's usually the way it goes. And then you go, wow, what was that? You know, some... Beast, that beast. <laughs> sorry, and that um, comes out, and, um, and then you have to like define it, or or is the other way, or is like some gentle, playful little, you know, insect thing in in you that comes out, and you go, ooh, where did that come from? And then you just try to match the outside and the inside, you know, slowly by, um, you know, just. I mean, I find colors really helpful, you know, just surround myself with, because that's something that's really easy to change and doesn't cost money. And, you know, like, stop wearing your red t shirt, start wearing your blue one or whatever. And, um, and also, obviously, the music you listen to, you know, uh, it'll be, I, I mean, I find that really telling. You listen to one album forever and it's just giving you this vitamin, you don't know why. And then one more morning you wake up and you put it on and it's like it's annoying. You know, it's just like what? Stop! You know, and then you have to find another album, and then you go, "What? Wow! Okay, why was that? Why? What is it in me that I, I can relate to this more than that now?" So, I mean, I just I'm just like anyone else. Also, through talks with friends, of course, I have got really really good friends that we talk a lot, and you just try to sort of work out this um, murder mystery that you're. Um, psyche is, you know, and to sort of try to keep um, in time, you know, and, and even the the inside and the outside. But to be honest, I always feel like I'm two months behind, you know, or, or, or even two years. I was actually just, when I did it last night, I was thinking like, fuck, I just feel like all this stuff is there that I, that I, I really crave, but I actually haven't you know, I'm not writing this kind of stuff now. What, like, what's going on with me? And then, and then I'm, I'm actually thinking, okay, well, like, why is that? Why do you feel there's something there that you haven't captured? So, it's it's it never ends. You know, it's always
1: one more riddle to solve. I think. And I guess that's what keeps it interesting, right? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, all really that is left to say is Björk. Thank you very, very much.
2: Thank you.
0: Hey this is Todd Burns again, thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998 we've done the main academy event in one city. Uh, The lecture you just heard for instance was from the academy in Montreal. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff. It's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. But uh, if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.